excited to be here. I'm very, very excited to be here. So, just kidding. So, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2. We have to hang on. When you get into a passage like uh, a book like Hebrews, you're going to be dealing with lots of meaty morsels, okay? Lots of weighty passages that are one or two words or one or two verses that we could spin off on and talk about for, for weeks if we wanted to. You know, things uh, such as uh, the atonement and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, you know, all the Old Testament scriptures and all these different things. But we want to be careful to do that. We want to do that where it's appropriate, uh, especially if it's appropriate with understanding the text. But we also want that those types of things to be wrapped around the historical context of what's going on in the text. And so as long as we're in chapter two, which we are today, and we're going to read through to the end, um, but this is going to be a two-part sermon, I guess you could say. This week, we're going to talk about one aspect of it, and next week, we're going to take uh, a part from the middle of this passage that really, uh, it fits here very well, but I didn't want to just breeze over it and not give it the attention that it needs. So we're going to do that next week, which I'll tell you more about that, but... Hebrews chapter 2, you cannot let go of the fact that he started this whole chapter out with a very strong exhortation, even warning for them to pay very close attention for, excuse me, what they have heard so that they don't drift away from it. Pay super close, razor sharp attention like you would if a ship was coming in, right? Pay the closest attention to this. Because if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression received a just penalty, how much more for us, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so that really is the springboard into the context of this chapter is neglecting this great salvation. And so the writer then talks about this great salvation um, and we talked a little bit about what it means to, to, to not neglect it, not to be apathetic, not to drift away, you know, but to always be moving and taking that action, trusting in the Lord, laying down your life, so forth and so on. But then he expands on this great salvation in, the, in verses 5. He talks about how man, who is so little in the sight of God, who is so seemingly insignificant, yet God has crowned him with glory to be able to rule over this earth. He has put us here to rule. But because of the sin in the garden and because of the fall of mankind, man has fell out of that ability to be able to rule justly under God, right? He sinned, so we get him out of the garden lest he eat from the tree of, of, of life and live forever, okay? So, in other words, you can't be in the one with God. You can't be in with the Lord when you're outside, separated from Him by sin. And so, <clears throat> He tells us here in that part of the passage we went through that that God has now reinstated our Adamic responsibility of stewarding the world, of being the, the, the dominion takers in this world. And so He's telling us. That Jesus, remember, he was everything that he just talked about, about Jesus. He's talking about this great salvation. But then he ties it into, 
You know, we're talking about the world to come here. We're talking not just about this world, but humans are going to be have a great responsibility in the next age to come as co-rulers with Christ. And that's what we talked about from verses 5 through 8 or 9. We talked about this great responsibility that we have and the great love that God has given us as human beings to be able to do this. But again, this wasn't done just by simply God, you know, interviewing the best human beings, was it? Nope, this was done by God choosing by his incredible pre or you know predetermined foreknowledge however you want to call it he chose Israel to save Israel and from them to be the salvation of the world and so in order to make all this happen with human beings for them to rule with God for them to know God, for them to hear God, to know and understand his word. They had to be reconciled with God. And so for the Hebrews, this was very difficult for them to understand because they always thought, well, we are the people of God, and this covenant that we have with God ensures that, and it promises that he's going to deliver us. And the writer of Hebrews is going, I know, but that happened through Jesus. And they're saying to themselves, this just doesn't jive. How, how can this happen? And so they have to be taught through the Old Testament scriptures. As Jesus taught the, the ones on the road from, uh, to Emmaus and started at Moses and the Psalms and the prophets and just went and said everything about himself. They needed to rush back through the Old Testament and connect the dots that this is what God has been promising here. And so what we get to in our passage today is another one of those questions in the minds of the Hebrews, of those how questions. Well, how are we going to be the people of God if the people of God isn't about genealogy? The people of God aren't about, you know, who the, the you know, the, our, our uh, nationality or anymore. It's not about that. It's not about circumcision and works of the law. How are we going to be the people in the household of God? And he, this is what I believe he deals with in this scripture. Because otherwise they were orphans, if you think about it. They were, peop, they were children, really, without a home anymore. They were children without a mother or a father. God was mad at them, right? Just to put it lightly, because of their adultery. And God said, I'm divorcing you. I'm done with you. I'm going to get pull people for myself out of you. Okay. And I'm going to, and, and, and he, and we know the story about that. So he was, he, they had no, nowhere. They were sort of in this middle ground. They thought without family, really without father is God, our father. Did he save us? Is he going to save us? But Jesus is the answer to that. He is the answer to all of those questions. He will establish the household of God. That's what Israel was waiting for. But now they're being told that the household isn't what they think. We don't even know what the household is. And you're telling me you're bringing other people in here to share this home with us? The Gentiles? This is a lot different for them to understand. And so in the passage, he goes, uh, we read nine before, it says we because he was talking about, you know, in subjecting all things to man, God left nothing that is not subject to him. 
But now we do not yet see all the things subjected to him being man. That's the end of verse 8. In other words, we don't see. I'm, I'm giving you this great picture of this great salvation, but you don't see everything yet. You don't see how it's all going to play out yet. You don't, we don't know with a clear, crisp eyes and, and picture of what the new creation is going to be and exactly what our job is going to be. But what do we see? We do see him who was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we don't necessarily see what we know we are going to become, but we do see Jesus. They saw Jesus. They saw the impact of Jesus. They, they, they were with people that touched and were with him. And it says in verse 10, it was fitting for him. Now, keep an eye on this verse, because this is a great verse about the oneness of Christ with the Father. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Talking about God, the Father. But yet we know that in other places in Scripture, it talks about Jesus being the one that were that he was he has all things all things are through him and he is in all things so he's comparing that with the father and then he says in bringing many sons to glory let me let me go back a little bit it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings so here we see god the father saying that he is going to the one who's the one who is uh, whom all are all things from him, and and they're you know from whom through whom are all things. This is the Father, and it was fitting for the Father to perfect the author of their salvation, Jesus, through sufferings. Ooh, that's a tough thing to understand, right? Through sufferings, we don't like to be perfected through sufferings. We like to be perfected through you know watching movies. We'll learn about something. Or we like to read books. We'll get all the good ideas from it. We don't like to be perfected physically through suffering. We don't like to have to watch what we eat and not eat what we want. Okay, and we suffer for that. Such persecution, right? But suffering actually is a choice um, way for God to get things done, especially through the scriptures. And why was it fitting for him to do this? Why was it fitting for God to perfect Jesus through sufferings? Well, first of all, what does it mean to perfect Jesus? Was Jesus sort of pretty good? He had a lot of God potential. But when he came down to earth, God with the Father was like, you know what? He would have been okay, but he needs to suffer a little bit to really, really perfect uh, salvation for everybody. No. It says that God was actually in, in the, it says that in his foreknowledge, in his predetermined counsel, it says in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus was sent to die on the cross. It said that he was despised and forsaken of men, Isaiah 53, 3-6, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men would hide their face, he was despised. <clears throat> and we didn't esteem him. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried out, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And at the end of that it says, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, has caused it. Now why is this something that had to be perfected? You see, what Isaiah is actually prophesying about this in this Isaiah 53, and even in Isaiah 52, is about the suffering servant. And that servant is, represent, is, is, a, is the representative of Israel in that passage. Israel is the one that had to receive all of this suffering. They had to be despised and forsaken. They had to be acquainted with grief, for surely they were. They had sorrows. They were stricken. They were smitten of God. They were afflicted. They were pierced through and crushed. It was absolutely game over for Israel. And so when we look back from the New Testament and we go and, and see these, these, these prophecies, we can see very clearly, because we're told, that this, is, this, this prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. So Jesus was the actual suffering servant. He lived it out and embodied it. He lived out and embodied Israel so that way he could be perfectly complete in all that he suffered to bring perfectly and complete the salvation and forgiveness of sins for Israel. Do you see that? So he had to be perfectly, completely satisfying of what was required for the punishment of Israel. That's what needed to be completely perfect. So Jesus was sinless. This isn't talking about his sinlessness. This isn't talking about his ability to save. This is talking about his faithfulness, his faithful obedience to come under every single thing that that bride whom he loved committed against him. And he went out and he did it faithfully and obediently. He perfected that whole aspect of salvation so that God could look down and say, this pleases me to crush him, to put him to grief. This is further down in Isaiah. He rendered him as a guilt offering. And then it says, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It, It pleased God to crush him because he knew the outcome and it was his son who he was well pleased with. It was Jesus who he was well pleased with. It says in Matthew three seventeen, Behold, a voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When, Jesus, when he says that, God's not just saying, Yeah, he's my little guy. He's my boy. I love my little gipper. It's not how he's talking about Jesus. We, we get into this, we fall into this romantic aspect a lot of times of Christ and the Father and the Son and all this other stuff. And we got to be careful here because he is well pleased and loves his son because of his son's willingness to lay down his life and be obedient and faithful 
to the calling that his father has put on him and he agreed with. I will send you a people, my son. And he says, my father, I will die for that people. Amen. Amen. And the Holy Spirit says, I am going to go and do the work of opening their eyes to re- reconcile this, these, this relationship. And it becomes unified. So he is complete. The other word for perfect is captain. He captained our salvation. Like maybe grabbing that ship and knowing what needs to be done and went out and did it. And this great salvation, people, again, came through great, great suffering. So it was Jesus as Israel in person dying for their sins so that kernel of wheat could fall to the ground and die and bear much fruit, right? Because once Israel's sins were paid for, now Israel can do their job, right? You have a job that you have to do, and you you know, and you get you end up going to jail for a while. You 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 better hope you got that job when you come out. But you find out somebody completely paid your debt. They got the job all waiting for you still. Now you go back and you do that job, and that's Israel's job was to do what. Go out and be the light of the world. And that's what Jesus allowed Israel to become, the light of the world, through now being able to go beyond the geopolitical land of Israel into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature because Christ's blood covers every, every aspect, every, every tongue, tribe, nation. It's not anymore about locale or, or genealogy or blood type or skin color. It's about this blood being covered for the sins of the world of all that would believe him. And so we see earlier again in the chapter, man is said to be made low, right? He's like we talked about, he was, he was, he's down below, even below the angels, but he is brought up through Christ because Christ too was also brought low. And that's the pattern we're seeing in this. We're seeing the contrast of it in this chapter. You know, uh, you know, Christ was Christ died for us. You know, and he he was brought low. And then we talk about man being brought low. And then those in Christ with Christ are brought up high. We're highly exalted. And now we see here again uh, this this roller coaster through the text is now going high again, right through through Jesus uh, perfecting our suffering. And then he, 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 he's going to go low because he goes to Psalm 22. Now, if you see Psalm 22, verse 12, um, it's Psalm 22 that they're quoting from. I'm sorry, I don't have the scripture up there today. But it says, I will proclaim your name. Well, let me back up. It says, verse 11, because he, he perfected Jesus through suffering, okay? He, the author of our salvation the one who authored our salvation, who began it, started, wrote it, and did all that, he was perfected, made complete for our salvation through suffering. And then it says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brethren. And then he quotes from Psalm 12. I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And so the picture here is Jesus standing in the middle of the congregation of all those that he has saved. And he's proclaiming the name of God 
to his brethren. He's proclaiming, Jesus is proclaiming the name of God to us in the midst of the congregation because we're now his brethren. And then again, it says in 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has has given me. This is rejoicing of Jesus in the fact that he is now able to stand before God, not as an only child, but as all of his brethren that he has died for and suffered for with him. It's It's pretty insane. So for Jesus to be able to do this. Now, Psalm 22, what's neat about Psalm 22, why does he bring this in? I proclaim your name to the brethren, and and does he do all this? It's because the way Psalm 22 is written, the very first part of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Saying that twice. Again, that's Jesus as the suffering servant of Israel. A lot of people say, well, that's when God hid his face and hid his eyes. And I know there's debate there. I don't have a necessarily problem with that. But from a theological perspective, Jesus is bringing attention to the fact that he is the suffering servant, not only of Isaiah 53 and 52, but also of Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 is a big, long prophecy of the crucifixion. We read a lot of it today. You know, it's, um, it's him... You know, being mocked. It's him with all his bones being out of joint. I want you to read it. You don't have to read it right now. But if you go through Psalm 22, it's pretty, you know, I am a worm. I read some of this. And and then it says, uh, uh, I read some of this in the beginning. But then if you get to verse 11, it starts to get a little bit more positive. And then he he says in 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are like joint or all my bones are out of joint. But then it goes down to verse 19 and it starts to be a song of exaltation. A song of God not being far off. And he's helping him. He's delivering him his soul. His only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lions. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you, you who fear God. Praise him, you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him. Stand in awe. Of him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. So he's getting told here, he's saying, Look, this affliction that I'm going through has turned out to please God and to satisfy this debt. And he's saying, The writer is bringing us to this that this is a him, Jesus, rejoicing in the fact that we are now his brethren. And Psalm 22, that big, that, that, like I said, a lot of times you got this one little scripture and you can just preach on that. But instead, instead of just reading that, go back to Psalm 22 and read the whole thing and go, why did this writer stick that in there? It wasn't just random to say, I know the Old Testament. He's talking about other people now being considered family. And here's the, here's the missing piece for the Jews. So you're telling me we are part of the household of God. It, it, yes, it's never changed. Your household now is just being fulfilled. Even it's being all the promises of God are now being fulfilled in Israel. And you now have a true household. You have true brothers and sisters. And those are they that believe in me, Jesus says. 
Who are my brethren? Who is my mother? All these people here, he said to those looking for him uh, when he was coming out uh, into Jerusalem. His, he considers, Jesus considers you his brother and sister. Now, why is this important? Well, it's not, I shouldn't say why is it important. That's obvious. But why is it such a, like everybody here is like, yeah, that's great. I want to be Jesus' brother. I love that type of brother, right? But it does come with a price. And that's, the, and that's the other thing that I believe the writer is trying to tell these people. Because again, this is in the midst of persecution. This is in the midst of trial. It's not easy to be a Christian here. It's not easy to be a Jew. It's not easy to be a Christian who turned from, from, from uh, Judaism. Because they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Sort of like at the Reformation. Are we reforming Catholicism or are we starting something new? The goal was to reform Catholicism. The goal was to say Catholicism needs to make these changes, but instead it split. And, and really, the, the New Testament Christians didn't look at themselves as non-Jews. They looked at themselves as now Judaism is finally going to be what it's supposed to be. But it went much further for them. And that's why they're having these struggles. So here's the problem with it. So God thought it was fitting that Jesus would be perfected and made complete to save all of his brethren, how much more does God think it's fitting for us and for our, our salvation to be made complete through suffering? You see, we, we're not greater than our Lord, so Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And so the suffering of this, of being that brother and being under one father is that God's will is for us to be like Christ and he, we're not going to be able to step out of that. We're in with Christ, so we are going to experience suffering. You're not going to experience suffering necessarily guaranteed every minute of your life, although some people do. I'm not talking about, you know, people that are really like living life under uh, life and death situations or maybe health wise or I'm not trying to downplay any of that. But I am talking about the seriousness of the sufferings that we, we go through just as an every on our everyday life, whatever it is that we do, whether it be difficult relationships or difficult decisions or, you know, having a hard time in school or whatever the case may be. If you don't look at this from a big perspective, you're going to wonder why God's doing that for you, to you. Why is he doing this? I'm going to church. Why is he doing this? I'm, I just started, you know, committing my life to the Lord and look what happened and why am I suffering? But see, that's not why God does it. God doesn't, you have to look at this as a, from a big picture. Not only that you're in this spiritual war, but that the actual day-to-day grind of your life is what is creating the kingdom of God and the particles for the kingdom of God. That's my, my uh, it's not scripture that there's actual particles. I'm giving you an analogy here. You've got to be careful. But he's giving all the building and all the components for whatever it is God has called you to do in your life. Those co- components are often fortified and made in the midst of suffering and pain. And so we have to be able to handle that when it comes. We have to be prepared before it happens. 
But we also have to know that it is God's will. It says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's one aspect of suffering. Jesus says that if you do that for the kingdom, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's going to be even more rewarded if you suffer. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But, you know, these are, this is persecuted for your faith. Yes, you're, you're going to do that. But also your sanctification. You know, that's the process of you becoming more and more formed into the image of Christ. That's what sanctification is. It's a set-apartness. It's a holiness. It's you becoming more holy by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God often uses suffering to make those to make that happen. And here's why I believe is that it was first of all modeled by Christ as it says in Philippians that he existed. It takes the huge drastic, you know, comparison here. He was in the form of God, but didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That doesn't mean he didn't really believe he was God. That's not what it means. Or I don't really believe that, uh, I can't really grasp the fact that I'm God, so I'm just, you know, I'm not going to think about that. But he's talking about him taking all of those divine uh, qualities, all of those divine instincts, all of those things that he easily is and knows and does all that. And, and here's where the Trinity comes in. He laid his life down and fully relied on the Father. That's why in John you see him with just every other chapter has the word, the father sent me, I do the will of the father, I think the thoughts of the father. He was completely reliant on the father. That's the only way he would have been able to get through, I think, as a human, that suffering, knowing that he is able. That's why he said to God, you know, if not my will, but your will be done, because he's talking to the father here, because his human side really experienced pain and suffering. And so we, like Jesus, when we suffer, it grows our sanctification because it keeps us more focused. Typically, when we suffer, we have a more reliance and a more focus either on ourselves or on God. We either get consumed with ourselves and start really overanalyzing and worrying and doing all this and complaining and just why does this have to be so bad? Or we focus in the middle somewhere, maybe with a little whining and a little trusting. But God wants us to fully trust on him, trust in him, keep our eyes focused on him like Christ when he emptied himself, took the form of a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of men and became obedient to the point of death. And so this is why I'm jumping over verses 14 um, through 16, because it talks about the fight that we have with the devil and the fear of death and slavery all their lives to this fear of death. And I'm going to take that. We're going to talk about that next week because I think that deserves uh, its own treatment here. But in 17, it says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
Did you ever think about that? So Jesus suffered pain, embarrassment, and the guilt of all the sins that were on him. But how can that allow him to relate to my temptation of looking at something I'm not supposed to on the internet? It says it right here. He was tempted in that which he has suffered, so he's able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. You see, I, my take on that verse is that the Bible says Jesus was marred more than any other man. I know that's hyperbole and, you know, it, the only way to say, you know, that is, it'll be, well, what about this guy that was, you know, completely obliterated over here? It's not necessarily the physical aspect of it. But the combination of everything that Jesus entailed made him unto God one of the most, uh, an abomination to God. And that suffering that was associated with becoming that abomination and becoming sin for us, I think every other suffering that we go to pales in comparison to what he had to go through as a human there. So Jesus has to bring you, has to bring himself through this suffering so that you can achieve salvation, but also so that you can achieve sanctification because now you're a brother of Jesus. Under the same father that ordered his suffering is the same father that we have maybe ordering our sufferings. I know that's hard to hear. God isn't doing it out of this weird sense of, ooh, I'm going to really get them to suffer now and teach them not to ever do that again. That's not biblical. That's not how God works. Suffering comes through and is in Christ because of what happened at the fall. The pain and suffering that was inflicted upon this earth because of the curse requires that this happened this way. That curse had to be broken through the pains of death, and there's no other way. Now, our suffering is, go, is to, our, to God's glory because it takes the things that are, you know, a lot of times it takes issues that we have and puts them in the right perspective. And, and Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal you come upon, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Suffering can either make you softer and wiser, or it can make you hard and bitter. And how you receive it is going to be how you view it in the line in the eyes of God. I'm not saying that I don't want anyone come in here next week and I say, how are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm in such pain and suffering, but all is good in the Lord, right, Pat? Being sanctificated. <laughs> We're sanctified. I'm going to smack you. No, I wouldn't do that. But I, but I would spiritually smack you. I'd spiritually scripture whip you and say, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? That's a false joy. You're, gonna, you're not always going to be like jumping up and down when bad things happen to you. But when you, don't, when you go through suffering, especially long suffering like Paul did, you have to reconcile that with the Lord like Jesus did and say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. This may be something that I have to live with for the rest of my life. This may be a battle that I have to fight 
for the rest of my life. But what does Jesus say to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. In tribulations and in difficulties and hardships and persecutions and weaknesses, I am going to be, for Christ's sake, strong when I am weak. And I know that's easy for you to say, and I know that's easy for me to say, and I say it with trepidation, believe me. But we have to keep our eye on the fact that Jesus has made us his brother. And this was the only way to do it. Now, suffering brings us to the end of ourselves. I think of Nebuchadnezzar who was, you know, came and went up to the roof of his house and say, ah, he said, I'm God, I created all this. And God brought him right down to his knees and he acted like a beast for seven years until he was able to, to praise God and to repent of that sin. So we have to realize that God has many different ways, many different uh, uh, reasons for, for suffering. But the bottom line is, is you have to know that, you're, that your Lord and Savior Jesus, he suffered for your salvation. And he also suffered for your sanctification to be able to have you as his brother and sister and for you to partake in this. He can identify with every single suffering that you go through. I don't care what it is. Something small. You have one of the, I have one of those friends that wants me to pray for every little thing. Like a to, I'm not kidding. A toenail broke. You know, pray that my shoulder a little bit. And that's great. I, I'm just, I shouldn't make fun of that. Praying for everything is, is great. You can, you can definitely do that. But know that God is with you during those sufferings, even the little broken toenails. All right, sorry to, as much as I don't like to say that to, to sort of demean who God is, but I have to show you the intimacy of, of this love that He has for you is beyond explanation. But if you don't think that God is in control of this and you don't believe that you're truly His and you don't necessarily understand the concept of free grace then you are going to struggle when you suffer. You're going to constantly think, did I do something wrong? Is this God getting me back? Is this God because I didn't listen over here and now he's really twisting my arm on this side? I don't believe that's how God works in the scriptures as the normative. I think his, the way he is in the scriptures, he's a loving, gracious, kind God to his children and he comes alongside of them. He, is with, he didn't come here to die to then just be gone. He did it to live in you and to make you this person that we're talking about here, this sanctified brother. So know that he's with you. <clears throat> know that you have to be with him and trust him. But also know that you have family as well. And I'll, I'll end with this. Not only does Christ bring us into the family of, of spiritual family as adopted, but he's given us the, 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 our church family as well. And so we should always be will, able to have somebody, two people, maybe whoever it is, at least myself, that when you are suffering and you are going through, you need to unify, you need to talk, you need to come out and not hold it in because we're all going through it, all of us. None of us are here are super Christians and we just have it all down. It's every, we're here for each other because this is how God has, um, has ordained it. And so with that said, we'll, we're going to share communion right now. And uh, there's no other ba well, way to um, illustrate this unity that Christ desires for us other than through the, the, the Lord's Supper, which is a sign and is also a seal of the gospel. 
um, the, the, this, 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 I should say, symbolistic ritual that, we, that, that people think is just going in your mouth and maybe it's changing into something that, that's not necessarily what, that's not what's happening. What God wants is to come, you to come together and, and with the fact that he, he gave his body and his blood for the purchase of your sins, of your life. And he doesn't just want you to sit there, stand there. He wants you to look back at what he did right now. And he also wants you to look forward to this brotherhood that you share with him in his flesh, in him from a spiritual perspective, and cling to him and be nourished upon him. So with that said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Hubert to come on up. Hubert, would you mind helping me pass out uh, elements? And then um, 